Welcome to episode 142 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Rob Walling and Mike Tabor from Startups for the Rest of Us podcast, MicroConf, and Micropreneur Academy. So this show is pretty much Texting versus Startup for the Rest of Us. Startups, <laughs> plural. Oh, <laughs> myself and Georgie have this thing where we take the S's off things. So instead of saying McDonald's, we say McDonald. And it's actually totally creeping into my full speech. So Yeah, you've, had, you've invented your own language, your own little patois. So, um, okay, where are we going to start? What do you wanted to talk about first, Justin? Oh, me. What do I want to talk about? Well, I, I guess the first thing is, um, is MicroConf going to be happening next year? Mike, should we <laughs> should we take this chance? So it was just about maybe 10 days ago, right before we recorded an episode of our podcast, I, uh, I told Mike, I said, you know, I'm not ready to say this publicly, but I'm on board for, for 2012. And Mike has always been on board. I mean, since like the day it ended, he said, I'm going to convince you to do it next year. So <laughs> this may be the exclusive announcement. I think you guys, just because you asked the question, get the exclusive. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So when is the world supposed to end according to the Mayan calendar? 2012. Right after microcom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're living in if you're living in London, it looks like the end of the world right now. <laughs> okay, why don't you talk? Well, let's well, let's jump into it, Justin. So you're uh, you're very concerned about what's going on and and with the riots in London because your house is like two blocks away, a house you own is two blocks away from one of yeah, right. I've got a house in Turnpike Lane, and and the riots started in Hackney, just down the road, Wood Green, and uh, yeah, it's it's just very very close to the situation that's going on over there, so. It's been, you know, I've been watching the news and seeing stuff, but I just can't believe that it's happening. It's just, it's just crazy that these kids are just, uh, it's, it's kids. That's what it is. It's kids ransacking, ransacking London. Um, I don't know how it started or why it's happening. It's just weird. You don't have any thoughts on that or why? England's kind of a little bit of a welfare state. Well, in fact, it's definitely a welfare state, but there's, I think we're sort of like in a scenario where we've got second generation kids of people who've lived off the welfare state without working and for some reason there's you know thousands of them um and uh, i guess they just feel like they're owed something i, I don't know i mean does anyone else ha- has it any guesses why this might happen it didn't the parliament uh pass some austerity measures recently and that was going to impact um i guess uh welfare state privileges or uh, entitlements I don't think that it's happened yet. I think it's up and coming. I mean, do, do, um, Rob and Mike, have you guys been, I guess you've been watching the news, right? Um, yeah. Any thoughts on this? Yeah. I, oh, I was going to ask you, why is this happening? Because I haven't heard any, any real uh, insight into it that, that explains it. I, but I think Jason might be right that there was a vote, I thought it was a month ago or six weeks ago, that, yeah. that pulled some austerity measures and some people were upset. But it was a while, you know, it may even have been two months ago now. I don't think kids are thinking that way. I don't think kids are thinking, oh, they voted for austerity measures. I think kids are thinking this is an opportunity to get into shops and get PlayStations and we can get away with it. And they're teenagers and teenagers try and get away with things. Well, you know, actually, so there's another side to the story. So there's, I think there's, there's two, two pieces to the puzzle. The, the one is there was this uh, stop and search um, policy that the police were using. And I think the, um, the black youth in London were feeling particularly targeted that a lot of them were being start, stopped and searched, not because they were doing anything, but just because of how they looked or, or where they were. And that, was starting to create a lot of, and that was starting to create a lot of resentment that was building up and building up. And then there was a, uh, a kid, I, I believe he's a black youth, who was shot and killed. And the rumor or the accusation um, by the people rioting it was, is that he was shot by the police and he was unarmed. And that was sort of the, uh, 
the spark that set off the whole rioting. And then I think what's happened as a result of that, may, maybe that was, um, you know, it started out as sort of this outrage of this of this killing of this youth and this resentment of maybe being of the of this group of people feeling that they were targeted, not just the black youth, but just I think a lot of the youth in general. And then there's also a lot of people probably jumped on and taking advantage of the situation and, and doing the looting. Well, there's a lot of talk about how tech is playing a massive role in this whole riot thing. So obviously Twitter and BlackBerry and all that sort of thing, but also even um, some of the inspiration for it coming from Grand, Fe- Grand Theft Auto <laughs> and things like that. Well, what do you mean? Playing the game Grand Theft Auto. I mean, that is exactly what's happening in London right now. They're running around. <laughs> oh, going okay. Crazy. So you think the world is mirroring art or mirroring entertainment? That I don't know. That sounds like a stretch. I mean, it, it, but the big, big, the big issue with the uh, the um, technology was that uh, the use of uh, BlackBerry. Uh, their blackberries to send messages to group to like okay we're all going to loot here or we're going to all ride over yeah. here and they would and they were encrypted. constantly out thinking the police because the police didn't know where they were going to be and it was like flick repeated flash mobs so i think for rob and mike they're like listening to an episode of texting right now <laughs> i told you I, you said oh, i'm gonna bring up london i'm like well look it's not tech and they're not from england so okay fair <laughs> enough all right well let's we'll we'll move on past that but anyway okay let's what's next to, let's get back to microconf okay shoot so um you know, I, I know you guys have talked about this a little bit on uh, Startups for the Rest of Us, but uh, why don't you recap for our listeners a little bit about what made you guys decide to do uh, or put on your own co- um, conference and how it went, um, and you know, compared to how you thought it was going to go. I mean, what was the big? What were the big eye openers for you? And uh, I don't know, Mike. Why don't you start? Why don't we, why don't we target the questions at one person at a time? I guess. <laughs> uh, which, where do you want to start first? Uh, why What'd we you- decided to have it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I, I think Mike, there were a, Mike talked me into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, that's that's what I tell everybody. I, I talked Rob into it. Um, I don't know. I I think that what we were really trying to do was build a conference that was uh, kind of similar to business of software, but at a much lower price point, so that people could actually afford to go if they wanted to. Um, you know, anyone who's ever been to business of software knows that it's about a $2,000 conference just to attend. Uh, and that doesn't include the travel, which because it's held in Boston tends to be very high. Uh, I live in Boston or I live near Boston and it's, you know, it's still expensive to go into the city and, uh, stay there overnight. Uh, I forget how much the hotel rooms were, but they were like two, two fifty, three hundred dollars $300 a night or something like that. Um, so it gets to be expensive. But we looked around and we didn't really see any conferences that were aimed at uh, very small companies. I mean, even business of software, I mean, the, the content there is great. The people are great. It's just that it, it seems like the audience there tends to be much larger companies, um, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100, a couple hundred employees. And it just seemed like there wasn't anything out there for people who were uh, single founders or own their own business. And just because, you know, Rob and I do what we do, we decided to build something that we would want to go to if, if you know, there were a conference that, you know, weren't, weren't there for us. Okay, this one for Rob. How, how did you convince big name speakers to do it? You know, we basically used our connections. Um, I have known Patrick McKenzie for quite some time, and uh, I actually emailed a couple guys out of the blue and but just basically saying I'm a blogger, you know. Luckily, these guys are, are kind of within our circles. Like they had heard of me, so I wasn't really just some guy out of the blue. I, it was like, oh yeah, I've read your blog, so at least I'll read your email and entertain the idea. And then 
I also worked, um, boy, I talked to Ruben because Ruben Gomez knows a lot of folks. And he, uh, I think he originally got me connected with Andrew Warner. And then once you have a couple of, the, a couple of big names, then in the email, you can now say, we already have Andrew Warner, Patrick McKenzie, and myself on board. And then you kind of, you know, then from there, you basically ask them for, for other people. So it was really uh, kind of getting the foot in the door and then it, it falls from there. And then Andrew Warner, I mean, I had kind of a short list of who I wanted to email. Once we had Andrew on board, I said, hey, you know, because he asked how we could help. And I said, if you could email these other guys and his emails just were answered right away, right? When he's, he could send his emails out, he's super connected. So, but you, 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 you told me in a separate conversation that he limits his emails to three sentences. So yeah, he, he was at that point. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. And just everybody knows him, you know, you see the, the subject line or you see the from, from name is Andrew Warner. And I think people just open their email pretty quickly. So uh, here, this is an interesting comparison, I think, is that you're, you're creating um, almost like a marketplace. You have a supply, uh, you have a two-part two problem, right? You have to get the, uh, the, the speakers, and then you got to get the attendees. And so it, I guess it's, hard, it's easier in your case to go and get the, the speakers first, right? Because you, once you have a, a list of speakers that are impressive, then the attendees um, you know, hopefully will follow. But you still have the problem of, of going to these people and convincing them that you're actually going to have enough people show up that's going to be worth their while. I mean, was there any concern on your point on your part that that was going to be an issue? I think there was, I mean, between both Mike and I, I think there was always concern right up until, you know, we sold enough tickets to make it viable. I mean, it was always just like, I don't know, we, we have a podcast and blogs and the Academy and my book. And, you know, we know we have audiences, but how many tickets are we really going to be able to sell? So there definitely was in the back of our mind, you know, the concern. But um, when we approached speakers, I, I pretty much said, I think maybe with the first two guys, I said, you know, everything's, it's like 95% right now. Um, would you be willing to do it? And then after that, we, we got a lot more confidence that it was going to happen, especially after we started building the email list. You know, we right. built an email list before we sold tickets or before we did anything. And that was partly to validate the idea in our minds. If we're going to put in all this work, let's, let's be sure we can sell enough tickets to to kind of, to at least you know break even hopefully or not lose too much really. Well, how big was your email list? It Mike, do you remember? It was I think it was around four hundred and fifty. Okay, or so. I was I was thinking five fifty, but Maybe I don't was. remember. It was probably it was in there somewhere. So if you have five hundred and fifty people on the email list, how many people how came to the conference? It was like about a hundred. Hundred and ten, yeah. Hundred and ten. So about a about a twenty percent. Um, yeah. Yeah, but we didn't conversion. we didn't sell that many. I think off of the list we sold fifty in one week. We basically did a one week launch where it was you know discounted, and we by the end of that week we had fifty tickets sold. So where did you get the rest rest from then? Uh, we had two months after that original launch to basically market. So we put together an ebook that a bunch of the speakers contributed to, and it was basically pay with a tweet. Uh, if you go to paywithatweet.com, you can download a button and people could tweet and then download the ebook. And that basically helped the, the website, microconf.com, go somewhat viral on Twitter. And, um, and then, you know, Mike and I talked about it on the podcast and blogged about it. And um, how else? My, oh, and we had speakers. We gave them free tickets to give away. And so some of them held contests. And that raised, you know, uh, kind of raised the profile and then we gave them discount codes. And so th there was just a lot of, it was just kind of trying to get everyone's audience involved. Having speakers is who are, who want to support the conference really helps, right? Cause people would email me 
and say, how can I help? And it's like, well, you have an audience. We'd love it if you tweet this or blog about it or somehow um, help spread the word. And, and, most of you, and most of your uh, speakers all had big blogs or big Twitter followings, right? Yeah, a good chunk of them. I'd probably say half out of okay. 12, yeah. We also, had, um, we also talked to the sponsors and got them to um, give away a couple of tickets here and there as well. That's right. Right. I was going to say, how did you split the workload? Like, who did what? So Rob handled most of the, the, the work with the speakers and with getting the conference uh, location all squared away. And I worked primarily on the, the back end of things and working with the, with the sponsors and getting them on board and, um, you know, get, getting things all squared away with that. So there were a lot of, uh, there, there were like a, there was a giveaway that we gave, uh, to people. There was the USB pens that were loaded up with data from the sponsors. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a, a combination pen, a, a light and, um, Oh well, so there, there was a laser pointer in it, and then it was, there was a two two gig USB drive in it. So sponsors were they? Did they just come willingly? Was that a hard sell, an easy sell, or? I'd say I probably contacted about fifty companies, and um, of those, I think probably about ten uh, became sponsors. It was between ten and fifteen, I think. And it took quite a bit of follow up, from what I recall. Just Mike yeah. and I had a, week, had a weekly call during that time, and it seemed like it was slow going, and it took longer than we thought. You know, we only had about a two and a half, three month time frame to put everything together. And mm -hmm. now, you know, we've already talked like we would probably next year are probably going to start six months, four to six months in advance. Wow. Yeah. Because the, especially a bigger sponsor, like, you know, say Microsoft who sponsored this year, it, it takes time, you know, to kind of get that, get, I'm sure get the paperwork through on their side and cut a check and all that stuff. Now you guys said on your podcast uh, that it turned out to be a lot more work than you had anticipated. And so I'm wondering, what did you get out of it personally that makes you want to do it all over again? I, I think that the experience of running a conference was a great one to have. And it would be very unfortunate to have a conference and then kind of throw that knowledge and information about putting on a conference away. And mm -hmm. I, I, I won't say that that is a massive contributor to us deciding to, to do it next year, um, but it does factor into it a little bit. Um, but other than that, I mean, I would say that we got... You know, getting in the same room with a lot of the speakers and talking to them one on one um, definitely helps in terms of your relationships with people. And uh, again, with all the different people who attended the conference, I mean, it was really cool just sitting there and, and talking to people about their ideas and what they were doing and how they were going about it. I mean, everybody there had a different story. And it was just really cool to go and, and listen to all those stories. And you know, that, that was probably the, the best part of the conference was going there and being able to talk to people who are essentially peers who are, you know, building their own companies and running into the same types of challenges. And you get to talk about what sort of things work, which things don't, um, different ways of, atta of uh, attacking the same types of problems, et cetera. Rob, is that kind of how you feel? Yeah, I, I think there were some other benefits as well. Uh, Mike and I have talked about in the past. It's like um, there were certainly some kind of getting our names out there. You know, it's, it's like writing a book or, or writing a blog. I mean, putting on a conference, you, you are at the forefront of people's minds for, you know, at least two days and maybe, you know, the few weeks before that too. So I, th I feel like it raised our profiles a bit. And um, it was also, I mean, frankly, it was also as stressful as it was. It was one of those things that you take on a big challenge and I, I viewed it as a personal challenge. And so coming out the other side, 
although I was exhausted, I looked back and I said, man, I was, I'm, I'm really glad that I, that I did that. You know, I think I got something out of it. It's kind of like when you run a marathon, you would say, what'd you get out of that? And it's like, well, I got a sense of accomplishment and that, right. that was a big motivator for me, you know, leading into the new projects I'm working on. Rob, you mentioned, uh, when we, uh, actually had a conversation last week, you were visiting in, uh, in uh, the LA area, you said that you get some advice for Justin and I for any food. You said that we shouldn't go ahead, go ahead and create an LLC. That we should just do a partnership and set up a PayPal PayPal account based on that partnership. And that's what you and Mike have done. I think through MicroConf for MicroConf and for Micropreneur the Micropreneur Academy. Is that is that right? I'd like to maybe you talk a little bit about that because I thought that was a really uh, good idea, a good piece of advice. Just to clarify, I didn't, remember I clarified, I don't give legal advice. Like I would hate for you to, you know, I'm not actually giving you advice. I'm simply suggesting that this is maybe what I've done once. Right. Oh, by the way, did you get any emails based on that? I didn't. I heard you too. Nice. <laughs> you, he totally announced my email address on the air and said, no one email him about this stuff. Absolutely. Under no circumstance should you email Rob at Rob Software by Rob. You know, I remember what that's from. We, we, we were joking about that, uh, Rob, and we couldn't remember. It's what from Dvorak. Had. No, 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 no. It's from, uh, I think it was a movie called 1941. You remember that with John Belushi? And the, All right. Uh, and the, guys, the, guys, the guy has this giant anti-aircraft uh, uh, gun stationed outside his house. And the, and the, and the, right. the, uh, the guys, because we're telling him, under no circumstance, load this shell. Under absolutely no circumstance, should you do this? Okay. I'm, I'm a bit young it. for that. Yeah, a bit young. <laughs> Wait a minute. Tumbleweed rolling in all of our heads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all, right, okay. all right, all right. So, oh, LLC. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, a, an LLC is great for reducing liability, and um, there can be some tax advantages to it. The, the issue is, is it does add some paperwork. It adds additional cost, especially in California. It's another $800 a year. And I think in uh, like Massachusetts, it's $500 a year. And it also adds, um, well, it just adds more paperwork and more headache and the CPA charges you more to do your taxes and stuff. So it's not that you don't want to do an LLC. Um, we actually do have an LLC, Mike and I do have an LLC in place now uh, for the Academy MicroConf stuff. But for the first maybe, I don't even know, six or eight months, we, we were just doing a partnership agreement. Um, and this is how... Uh, I've done it with .NET Invoice. And even on my own, I was a sole proprietor for about eight years before I formed an LLC. And it was, these were, uh, the reasons were to minimize paperwork and expense and, um, you know, just, just headache and stuff. So there comes a time when you should definitely do it. But I, I just question, often people do it like the first day they have an idea for a website. And I think, I think it's once you're making, I don't know, thousand bucks a month, two, I don't know, 5,000. There's, there's a level there. It's, it depends on your level of comfort and risk, uh, you know, right. but, um, so that's it. Well, what, so what, did just, the, uh, what did the partnership agreement consist of? Did you guys just write it up yourself as like three or four sentences or did you download some template off the web and, and modify it or what? You remember? Um, I, I sort of remember, uh, what Robin sent me something that was, I don't know, like a couple of pages long. It wasn't real long. And then what I'd done was, um, I went through some of the legal agreements that I was using for um, the the contract work that I was doing, and basically added in various things just to cover different situations. Like, for example, one of the things we put in there was uh, that, that you wouldn't necessarily think of when you're putting together a partnership agreement is like a death clause. So, what happens if Rob dies, or what happens if I die? Um, the legally uh, speaking, if Rob died. 
his assets go to his wife. And honestly, I don't really want to go into business with his wife. Nothing against her, but you know, she doesn't really bring the same things to the table that Rob does. You know, (laughs) my my wife doesn't bring the same things to the table that I do if I were to die. So we're just like, well, this is something we should probably think about and at least talk about because if that happens, then you're going to have to deal with it in, you know, in a court and with lawyers and you're better off getting that stuff taken care of. So when you look at most legal agreements, they tend to be a collection of what an attorney has seen in the past and has experienced or been burned by um, or looked at and seen in other legal agreements and said, hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to take that and use it. Um, right. So we just, you know, we went back and forth a little bit and I, I, I don't think it was really long. It was only probably two or three pages total. Right. And you, you guys set up a partnership for each separate uh, venture. So MicroConf was a separate partnership than, say, the Micropreneur Academy? You know, we didn't. By the time we were really cranking on MicroConf, we already had the LLC set up for Micropreneur Academy, and we just put everything under the same umbrella. So what happens if you don't do a le- like a legal piece of paper with partnership on it, and you just work together and do it that way? Uh, then it's a verbal agreement. I mean, it, you know, if you trust the person, then that's fine. I mean, I guess if... Um, that verbal agreements, right, are always dicey. <laughs> you know, that's no problem. I'm just trying to yeah. understand what you do with this piece of paper once you've got it written up. Oh, I mean, yeah. Is it something you show to banks? I mean, what, you, what you happens with it? Yeah, if you want to open a, a an account, you typically have to show it to them. And then I don't remember if we had to show it to the IRS to file taxes. We, I genuinely, I honestly don't remember. But um, basically, yeah, it's more just to, to clarify, between us was the big deal. Right. There's two different pieces of it. One is the agreement that kind of defines the partnership itself between, you know, the two people uh, and how the partnership will operate. And if you have like an S corporation or a C corporation, generally you get a binder that basically says these are the bylaws and, and this is how the company is going to be run. With a partnership or an LLC, you have a lot more flexibility. So you can generally just say this is how it's going to happen and whatever you put down on paper, that's how things will work. But then there's the other side of it in terms of the state and getting official recognition to say this is a part, an official partnership sanctioned by the state and you have to pay some uh, fee for that recognition, but then you can operate as a partnership and you can get, um, you know, you can file papers that will basically allow you to get a bank account in the business, uh, in the name of the, of the business and allow people like, you know, the, the two of you to have access to the business account, et cetera. Well, how so long did you guys run... How long did you guys work as a partnership before you incorporated it as an LLC? It wasn't that long because the, I mean, what was it? Maybe six months, Mike, six or eight months. Yeah. Uh, but the reason, I mean, the Academy was already up and rolling. It had been running for six months when Mike came on board and pretty early on we said, all right, let's just do a partnership right now because we want to get rolling and then we'll get a lawyer involved kind of as soon as we have time, but it was already generating revenue and it was a viable business. So we had plans right from then to, to make it an official LLC. There are actually, uh, there were benefits for us to do that. And so it wasn't like we got together and started something that had zero revenue and we're going to write code for four months, then launch something, then not have any real revenue for another four or six months. You know, we, right, uh, right, right. we kind of had a, a business already going when it happened. Right. Uh, Jason, I think we've covered that. Um, sure. But one, one thing that uh, just from what you just said there, Rob, uh, I know that you um, have a lot of little businesses, a lot of different kind of micropreneur 
businesses, .NET Invoice, uh, Micropreneur Academy. Um, what I don't know is uh, what Mike has going on, what different things he has going on. I have a few different products that I've uh, launched over the years and either, you know, for the most part, I've taken most of them off the, off of the market. The one that I'm I'm plugging away at at the moment is called Audit Shark, which uh, I think you and Jason and I had talked about that at the speakers dinner at MicroConf. And okay. Yep. So that's what that's what I'm spending the the probably the majority of my time on right now is trying to get that finished off and um, you know at at the point where I can actually put it in front of customers as a full blown uh, beta. Is that now you the- being a micropreneur of that business? Uh, uh, explain what you mean by that. Well, is it because obviously um, micropreneur has a certain association of starting, you know, small little things, and I'm I'm wondering if that is one of those, like uh, a, you know, like a thousand yeah. business. No, it's not. No, it, it's not definitely really. a bigger market. Yeah, Mike. Mike has a real lead into this auditing, um, auditing and compliance. Is that what it is? It's. Mm-hmm. It's so boring. No, I'm just kidding. It's nice, it's, it, it, it truly does sound really interesting. I know, I know it does. But Mike has a, he's been consulting in it for years. He has this internal knowledge, and the market is big. I think there's a real right. opportunity there. So, yeah, but Mike's in a unique situation as well. Like a lot of micropreneurs are starting things when they have a full time job and they're trying to do it on the side. And while he does have other obligations, he's certainly not you know cranking away at a nine to five salary position. He he has more uh, you know more flexibility to really get into a bigger market. One of the things that I was saying to a lot of people in uh, MicroConf is I think it's great to have a, a very small little business first so you can get a macro idea on how to run a business and then potentially you could start to do bigger businesses afterwards. So there's never really any loss in doing a small little business, even as a trial. In addition to the learning, I mean, you have the added benefit of, of the fact that if it starts making you some income, so like in your case, Justin, Plugio is making around three grand a month. I mean, that takes some pressure off uh, from you in terms of the number of hours you have to spend consulting, right? That's roughly 30 or so hours of less consulting time you need to log and that you can do other things. Yeah, totally. But I, I honestly feel the biggest value that Plugio has brought to me is the learning of building that small little business that, that can be applied to something like anything. You know, I think one thing way you describe me is you get your arms completely around a problem. I mean, we talk about that in terms of coding. It's like, you know, you kind of close the loops um, before you start something new. And it's sort of like in this case, you build a product, you market it, you process payments, you deal with customer support, you iterate, you kind of go through that process a few times. I mean, I, I mean, I guess, is that something you guys talk about in, micro, in the Micropreneur Academy about uh, sort of getting your arms around a problem or getting your arms around a company? I, I think probably not directly, but we do talk about it quite a bit because we, we talk about all the different things that kind of go into uh, putting a product together and doing the marketing for it and then is selling it, handling customer support. We probably don't look at it directly and say, okay, there's all these different things that you have to worry about. We try to gloss over a lot of those things and only talk about certain things at a time, you know, a limited number of things at a time because when you talk about too much stuff, you say, okay, well, you've got to worry about payment processing. You've got to worry about marketing. You've got to worry about your website. You've got to worry about the product. You've got to worry about bug reports and yada, yada, yada. And you, you can, you know, you can go on almost forever. And the problem is that's very, very overwhelming, especially for somebody who is just, you know, getting into it and trying to figure out, okay, well, what do I want to build? And then you start throwing all these other things at them. Well, you got to worry about these other things as well. And it, and it's just too much. So we don't really throw everything at people all at once. We kind of lay things out and show them 
what things are probably the more important things to, to worry about first and then leave other things for later. One thing that you mentioned, uh, Rob, when we talked last week is you said that your next shot was going to be going for something a little bigger. Uh, you're going to go for sort of like a seven-figure business where the micropreneur approach is maybe going through the 100K kind of range. So it's a, it's a, it's a good starting point. And uh, Mike, it sounds like you, without a shark, you're, you're in the same boat. You know, you're going for the seven-figure type of business. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of like the, uh, I'm going to use a, an obscure reference here, <laughs> see if anyone remembers it. So you know in the movie Swingers, the guy goes, and he's trying to pick up girls, and he, and he gets a number from a girl, and the guy's like, all right, good job, good job. When are you going to ask her? When are you going to call her? And he's like, oh, I'm going to call her tomorrow. And they're like, dude, no, you got to wait at least three days, right? They lay into him. And then eventually, then he's like, all right, all right, all three days. And like, well, how long are you guys? How long do you guys wait? They're like, ah, two weeks. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you guys are telling, like, start with a micropreneur, but it's like, you know, we're going seven figure now. Like, you're on to the next step. Is that? <laughs> Got it. I do remember that movie, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I just saw it for the first time a couple months ago. <laughs> nice. Wow. So you, so at least it's fresh in your mind, but you know what I mean, right? You're, 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 you're talking, you're giving advice about the, at the micropreneur level, but you actually mm-hmm. are on to the next step personally, which is the seven you know, figure. So, so, I mean, I think that's an interesting point. I, I don't view them as being that different. Like the fundamentals are between those two things are so similar and a micropreneur business can pretty easily grow into the mid six figures or even low seven figures. I mean, a lot of the businesses, um, uh, you know, that I've seen that are, are, that we might call micro businesses have that potential to do that. So I don't know, I don't know that I would write, draw such a, a firm line between the two. Um, I do know that, that at this point, I mean, I've been doing essentially micropreneur stuff for three and a half, maybe is it four years? I mean, I've, I guess my first micropreneur product was like eight years ago, but really doing it full time, uh, able to quit consulting is about three and a half years now. And you know, I'm, I'm a constant new learner, like I need to learn. And so I'm ready for a new challenge. And I think uh, really focusing on something and kind of taking it to the next level, which I could do with, with most of my businesses, I could decide to focus on any one of them and bring it up. I don't think it's a limitation of the business. It's a limitation of kind of the time that I've had to invest in, in any of them. Is it a passion thing? I mean, for example, I know with Plugio, if I really put everything 100% into it, I could probably turn that into a seven bigger sure. business or whatever but i've just for some reason i'm I, at the moment i'm more interested in working on the any food thing with uh with that uh, crazy uh, co-host of and <laughs> yeah i would i would say that i mean i think uh you know for the past year since i wrote my book i've been kind of looking for that next thing that's really going to excite me and you know how we talked about I mean, the last time i was on we talked about the madness which is uh kind of like, maybe that's a derogatory term for it, but it's kind of like being really excited about something and being so excited that you want to kind of take a big leap at it and invest. You're obsessed. You're obsessed. obsessed. You really, you can't think of anything else. Right. And so, I I mean, I I can easily see kind of focusing headlong on this thing for six to 12 months, maybe 18 months, uh, and and probably beyond there if if it really does build up. But um, I'm just, I'm ready for a new challenge. And doing another micropreneur business, I mean, gosh, I, I have so many of them, doing another one doesn't sound that exciting to me. I still think the approach is, is completely valid. It's what I make my living off of. You know, 100% of my income comes from that approach, right? And so this is, that's what allows me the flexibility to then say, oh, I'm going to try this kind of new thing. It's not actually that new because everything I've learned, I'm basically going to apply and then just, like, like uh, Justin said, 
I'm going to just put, you know, kind of all my passion and, and desire into building that one up. And now is that the same for you with uh, Audit Shark, Mike? I think that with Audit Shark, I, I look at it as, in, in a way, a golden parachute for me, to be perfectly honest. Um, it's a market that I'm in a very, very unique position in. Um, I did consulting in the audit and compliance world for several years. I helped write software for a couple of years at a startup company that did this t- type of thing. And then for several years after that, I mean, I owned my own consulting company where, you know, that's all I did. And I had some extremely large customers that I worked with. And, you know, to give you an idea, one of the customers I worked with was 125,000 employees. And, wow. you know, I, I basically built software that would run across 10,000 servers, which was a, a mix of all these different databases and operating systems. And it was really kind of crazy the way that it worked. But I learned a lot of things by working with all those different customers. And, you know, that was one of the largest customers that I work with, but one of the smallest was about 400 employees or so. And I found that there's this, I'd say, a very, very good market opportunity for me for customers that are below, I don't know, 1,000 and 1,500 employees or so. And I don't see anybody else out there who's doing what I'm doing, nor does anyone look like they have the knowledge and or motivation to do it. So I think I'm very, you know, just for lack of a better way to put it, in a very, very good position to be able to do it and pull it off with probably very little competition. It's just the way the stars have aligned for you, basically. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I think think you can look at a lot of successful startups and they often had some kind of competitive advantage. I mean, not that nobody could compete with them, but they had they had the right kind of experience, the right kind of connections, the right kind of um, maybe personal strengths that it just made it the obvious thing to go after. I mean, you, you probably could go down the list and say, well, you know, why did this work? It's like, well, this person, you know, they knew these people, they did this in the past and just everything worked out. And then you could just leverage your strengths. I mean, it seems like the biggest, the, the, it really decreases your odds of success when you kind of go outside your wheelhouse and start doing something you don't know anything about. It's a product you don't use and you try and make it work. Rob, um, how many micro businesses do you have? Well, I mean, it depends on how you d- define it really. Um, 30. Like, yeah, I mean, so I, I, pro- I think I own like, I mean, I own a hundred domain names, but I only have, I have maybe 30, 30 websites but, but, you know, eight of them, I've talked about on the podcast before, like eight of them I bought and they're AdSense websites. Um, it's like unique content written by a guy who was kind of an expert in these fields and, or at least had experience in them. And um, he had AdSense on them. And so I bought those as a group. So is that eight or is that one? You know, and those right. do generate, uh, you know, I think collectively they generate several hundred bucks a month. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't really call that a business. That's just kind of more of a thing. I, I did it to figure out ad placement and to do testing and basically to learn because I was really in, intrigued by it uh, more than to because I was so passionate about, you know, learning how to, how to optimize a site like that. Um, and then I have, but then there's a business like .NET Invoice, which really is, you know, I would call it a business. Um, then there's like, I wrote my book, published it about 13, 14 months ago, and that still makes money. So I don't know if you'd call that a business or not. So, you know, it's it, a revenue stream, right? They're just yeah. using a little revenue stream. Yeah. So, and there are certain ones I'm, I'm definitely more passionate about. Obviously the book uh, and the Academy are, you know, I'm like, those are my passion projects. The ones that I do that I actually make tend to make less per hour working on those because I enjoy them. 
Like I'm willing to do that. Whereas something like, um, uh, you know, even .NET Invoice or like Wedding Toolbox, which is an online wedding website builder, um, or ApprenticeLimanJobs.com, which is a job board. I, I won't do those if those, you know, those have to have a high dollar per hour value for me. Is that, so that's important to you to break stuff down to a dollar per hour value? It is because, well, it does a number of things. One, if I ever do decide to sell it, I, I don't typically plan to sell things, but if for some reason I needed an influx of cash to fund something, it's, it's a great selling point to be able to say, I've tracked my hours for the last three years. You know, here's the revenue and here's how much I've made per hour invested of my time. I basically have this thing automated to the point where it's worth more than, you know, a lot of the stuff you'll see for sale. So, and it also helps me justify, I mean, if I look at a site that's not making me a bunch of money or um, taking a lot of my time, I have to ask myself, am I enjoying working on this? You know, in the, the academy, early on in the academy, I was making 15 to $20 an hour, which obviously is substantially lower than I would value my time at. But I knew that, A, I was building something. Yeah, I think you can make more money doing uh, babysitting. Yeah, probably. exactly. <laughs> but then, but I knew I was, some, I was building something that was special and I really enjoyed it and I enjoy working with, you know, entrepreneurs. And luckily, you know, as time goes on, has gone on, we've automated more stuff and, and outsourced it. So it, it's not that bad anymore. But um, that gives you a sense. So I, I guess to answer your question, I don't know. I mean, I typically say 10 or five or a dozen. I mean, it kind of, it kind of depends on the audience I'm speaking to as to what I think they will consider a business, you know? Cool. Well, uh, Jason, so Jason sent us all around an email with uh, a bunch of links and, and uh, crazy texting topics. Um, <laughs> the first right. one there is winter is coming from Eric Reese. Jason, tell us a little bit about that. Why, why did you put that on there? So Eric Reese, he's the, he's the big, uh, I don't know, the, well, he's a Pied Piper of the Lean Startup movement. Right. And uh, he just wrote a quick, uh, a short piece talking about how, you know, we, we obviously we go in economic cycles. It looks like, you know, we could be headed for a, another downward uh, move, kind of like we saw in 2008, maybe not as severe, but that that can actually be a good thing because it gets rid of all out of the noise and a lot of the hype um, because you get a lot of entrepreneurs coming out. Everybody wants to be uh, a startup founder because it's sort of this cool, fun, sexy thing. You see your movies about it, like the social network and, um, you know, you have these crazy valuations. But if that changes, then it makes things a little easier in some ways for the real businesses. Um, but it also changes things a little bit in terms of raising money. So if you're going to raise money, you'd want to raise it as soon as you can um, because it may be hard to raise money, you know, in six months or a year, especially if there's a financial uncertainty. And, you know, that was all interesting, but I, one thing I was going to ask uh, you guys, Rob and um, Mike, about how do you think, does that have any special influence in terms of the viability of uh, bootstrap businesses as opposed to, uh, you know, com businesses that are really looking to be funded? Rob, you can go first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Say Bueller. Bueller. <laughs> Bueller. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely have some thoughts on that. I kind of hit my stride during the last recession, like the 2008 thing when everything busted. I think there's a ton of, of opportunity during those times. I mean, we've all read the, the blog posts that talk about this, right? It's like stuff gets cheaper. People are willing to negotiate more. You might be able to get your hosting a little less. You can find coders who are out of work. Um, you know, assuming there's, and Eric doesn't have any specific time frame in mind. You notice he's pretty specific about, I'm not saying it's in the next six months. I'm not saying it's ever, but it, it's, uh, 
he says, I'm not saying it's in six months. I'm just saying it's going to happen eventually, right? We're kind of in a boom. And so that means there there probably will be a bust coming. So he's really going on a limb there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, but he, but he is, it's probably a good reminder for people because I, I think people start to think that, that the current status quo is, is going to go on forever. Sure. And he's basically saying like, no, you know, it's really not. Um, so yeah, so there's definitely opportunity. I think bootstrappers especially have great opportunities because now's the time when you can, uh, you can do stuff cheaper. And, um, I also think that, that starting stuff on the side right now is, is a good advantage. Um, just because it, even, you know, if the economy starts to slow down and as it starts to slow down, it, it's launching something on the side that kind of can generate some money for you. It'll not only help you if you lose your job, but it's, um, kind of building up skills for you, you know, if you need to find another job. And I, I don't know, there's just a lot of, I see a lot of benefit to doing that. I, I think my personal take on it is that there's probably not a bad time to ever be bootstrapping. Um, you can start it, whether it's in, uh, you know, as he refers to it in winter, in the middle of summer. I honestly don't know as it really matters because during those times you you know, you're bootstrapping and it's not as if you have a ton of money to throw around at a particular project. So you're funding it with money that you're making from that. And as long as you're paying attention to whatever the product is that you're developing and making sure that it is what people want, then you're going to be able to survive, you know, the, the winter that's uh, you know, supposedly coming, which, you know, as he said, could be six, six months out, could be six years out. How about you guys? Well, I, you know, for me, I think, uh, I, it's nice when there's not too much noise out there. I think it gets kind of annoying when you have, you know, 5,000 startups launching every month and they're all getting funding from these accelerators and it's just a bunch of, you know, uh, copycats with everybody's jumping on the last trend. I, I find it sort of annoying, but it doesn't, I don't know, I guess it maybe doesn't really affect me directly, but uh, I don't know. It's like, I guess I would prefer there to be a little less hype and less noise. I remember back in like 2000, six, seven range before the crash when the Web 2.0 uh, sort of bubble was at its peak. I mean, it was like TechCrunch was on fire. It was like there were so many new startups and everybody's doing all this crazy stuff to get attention. And I, I don't know, it just kind of drowns out the real value because everybody's just trying, because it's so easy to raise money that you can have these half-baked ideas, ideas and copycat ideas that likely are, don't have any real value for anybody. But because of the... Uh, the insanity of the of the market that they can get funding and get attention and I don't know suck up resources. Yeah, well, for me, it's that's what I love about bootstrapping. I feel that it's it's sort of going on in a different dimension to the rest of these other um, things, and so I think that you can kind of go through the slipstream. Um, and part of that is because when you're well, I don't know for every bootstrapping company, but the way that I've been working with Plugio, you you build such a personal relationship with the customers that they're probably gonna stick with you unless your product really does have no value, you know, at the time that uh, the bust happens. So another topic I had was called why social proof matters to your startup. And it was kind of a, uh, an interesting article. I mean, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm just looking at the article now and it's written by this guy who's like a f college freshman. <laughs> it's like, right. you know, it's funny. We, if you, you know who you're getting advice from, but it was interesting data point. And he, he, he mentions that he had, uh, that someone had written a blog post about his product and they got a lot of uh, signups as a result. Um, and then not too long after that, he wrote a post that also I think hit Hacker News or something and, and got uh, about twice as many um, people, um, views, actually hits, as the original post, a uh, post by, uh, by a third party. 
but they had half the number of actual conversions. And his the lessons that he's trying to he's drawing from that is like the social proof aspect of these article of these posts mean a lot. So if you just write about your post, it's like you know, it's especially if you're trying to talk it up or promote it, it people are discounting that severely. Whereas if a third party starts writing about something, then you know, there might be some validity to what they're saying. And I'm just wondering, you know, for you guys, I mean, I know you guys do a lot of SEO uh, type of stuff for getting attention. Do you, have you guys ever spent much time, you know, uh, I don't know, writing posts or, or, or working on press to get attention for what you're working on? Yeah, but um, I, I think the, the issue that I would take with the conclusion he came to was that the 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 two different posts i mean it, it's it's not a one to one correlation the original one by somebody else was about the product itself and how he had um you know what what his experience using the product was so when you're going to these news websites like dig or reddit or hacker news you get a very very limited blurb at the top you know usually just the title of whatever the article is and uh, you know it it would have been about oh i found this you know great new product that does this well, when he wrote it, he wrote his account of creating the site, which, you know, is, is, you know, if it's titled, you know, my experience building X, it's going to draw a different audience. And because of that different audience, they're there for a different reason. And basically, you end up with uh, traffic that is no longer targeted for buying the product. So I'm not terribly surprised that he got. Uh, I think, what did he say, 50% lower conversion rate from the second group of people right. than the first. Well, when I, when I read this article, and basically the long and the short of it is, if people recommend your product, you're going to sell more of it. I just thought, well, no shit, Sherlock. Well, that's that's true. I mean, I'm just curious. Like, But I think what um, I think what Mike brings up is a really good point. It's not just about that, but about the idea of like what kind of people are being attracted to reading your post. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting because... You can, if you're using sites like Hacker News or Reddit or Dig to draw ta uh, traffic to hopefully get conversions, um, you got to be careful what you're spending your time writing because if you're writing about like the startup experience, unless your product is really marketed towards startup founders, um, then it might just be wasted uh, wasted time. Because Justin, you spent some time doing that too. You wrote a bunch. You wrote a few posts that were sort of about the startup. Um, I don't know, start yeah. a problem. Yeah, there was, there was a few times. I mean, there, you know, I was a few times when I was on the front page of Hacking News and it just didn't turn into very many conversions at all. I th just think it depends, you know, as you say, it depends on the business you are. Obviously, 37 Signals have a lot of success doing it. And, you know, maybe there is just one golden child who can keep on having no, success. No, 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 doing no, no, no. Because a lot of people have had success with that. But, you know, the, you know, but their products are used by startup founders probably more than, say, Plugio. Right, right. Exactly. And I think that's, that's exactly. the lesson learned. Not that there's somebody special, it's that. You know, if your product is is aimed at that, it the kind of people who would read that blog post. So, well, that's that's what I mean. And when I sorry, when I say special, I'm not being clear. But I mean because their products obviously are in alignment with what they write. That's what I mean. Right. So, you know, do you guys? I guess I'll just. I guess I should start targeting one person at a time because <laughs> I keep throwing up these balls in the air, and you guys are both looking at each other. So, um, I don't know, uh, Mike. Do you do you spend time blogging as a way to drive traffic to your stuff, or is that not really apply to the things that you worked on. Um, I don't remember the last time I tried blogging to drive traffic to a product. Actually, that's not true. For MicroConf, I did. Um, okay. But that was, I think, very 
that, that was a, a different case um, because the type of audience that I would expect to come to my blog are the type of people who are interested in the things that I do and the things that I'm doing. And microconf was aimed at people, you know, like me. So, you know, that I, I think that that's a completely different story. But in terms of products and stuff, I almost never blog in an attempt to get people to come buy my stuff. And the reason is because it just doesn't work. I mean, traffic that comes, I mean, if I, if I throw something out there on Hacker News or Reddit and I get, you know, 50,000 people to my site in a couple of days, virtually none of them are going to buy it because they're there for the story. They're not there for the product. Right. So I, right. I just don't think that those blog posts help very much. Um, unless it's some ancillary product about, you know, how to, how to make more money or something like that. Maybe you're trying to sell an ebook or something like that. Maybe you'll get a higher conversion rate, but um, my guess is you'll get a lot of traffic and, you know, o- over time that that's probably going to even out. It's not going to make a difference. Right. Whereas, I mean, so obviously I have a number of products and some of them are in the, some of them would, would be interesting to someone on Hacker News and some of them would not. And um, the ones that would be interesting or tend to be interesting to startup founders are my book, The Micropreneur Academy and MicroConf. And then I probably have, what, six to nine others <laughs> that are totally outside those niches. And most of them, most of all of the pro- of my products have been in blog posts at one time or another that have done well on Hacker News. And, uh, and Mike's right. You know, you get ten or 20,000 visitors and the, I'll see, I'll sell 30, 40 copies of the book in a day. Uh, you know, right. if, it's, if it's mentioned in a... No, it's not a post about the book, mind you. It, I typically mention it in an offhand way that, that applies, kind of like... I'm talking about something very general in this blog post and for more specifics, like it's here, it's in the book type thing. And I'm typically not trying to shill the book. I'm not selling it, but it's more like I have written about this before in a much more detailed way. And if it's worth 19 bucks to you, like go over there and check it out. So that, that does for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And same with, same with the Academy and same with MicroConf. Like, uh, you know, Mike's and I and mine, uh, like our, tw- our tweets and the, the podcast and our blogs, um, it was it was pretty obvious that that we got a good chunk of uh, of interest from those areas because those people are in fact interested in you know what we talk about in those venues. Now we we had a short discussion offline uh, last week about the value of Twitter followers versus the value of um, uh, say an email list and or or, or blog readers. And yep. do you have any? I mean, if you had to, to sort of rank them in in terms of the value and conversion rate. I mean, how, you know, you have your podcast, you got your blog, you got your Twitter stream, uh, maybe Google Plus, and you got your mailing list. Well, Jason, in, in his in uh, Rob's presentation, he actually went through this and um, had the 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 top of your list is the SEO, is it? Top of the list is email. Having an email list. Oh, email and then SEO. Yep. Yeah, right. Well, SEO is member. SEO is more of a traffic strategy, not an not a retention. Like an audience right. retention strategy, I think of as more as like. Um, email or RSS subscribers or Twitter followers or Facebook friends or whatever. Oh, okay. So you, you think uh, Twitter is retention rather than growing? Yes. Well, because basically you're, when I say retention, I mean gathering people who are interested in what you want, what you have to say. That's really, and, and them giving you permission. It's a permission-based thing. SEO is not permission-based, right? If someone types uh, invoicing software into Google they see a link to .NET Invoice, they click through. They, I mean, there was no real permission given and I can't contact them. I can never, I have no idea who they are, cannot contact them. But if they 
click on uh, follow me, you know, or follow Rob on Twitter, then I now have, I mean, I can tweet out to them. Um, and in theory, I guess if we were connected, I could DM them, but I don't tend to do that. But yeah, it's actually a, a mechanism so, to where I can communicate with people where you have their info. So email is definitely on the top. I think it's tough to say. I think the podcast is next. Uh, probably really? below email. Yeah, it seems to, it, but it depends. The podcast is so high for engagement. Like the, the people that Mike and I meet who listen to the podcast really know us and feel like there's, there's kind of a bond there. And it's really cool to meet them and actually, you know, get to know them as well. Um, I feel like that's a much higher bond than RSS. Like I have 15,000 RSS subscribers on my blog. And I, Mike and I have between, I mean, it depends on how you look at it, right? But it's like 1,500, 2,000 listeners to the podcast. And I would guess that it's almost comparable in terms of engagement, um, like that 10 to 1 ratio. Maybe it's, maybe it's not 10 to 1, maybe it's 5 to 1. But I, I'm, you know, I, I'm pretty confident that, that listeners who do actually listen to our episodes are just much more engaged. And then uh, Twitter's definitely, I mean, in my experience, is on the bottom like Twitter followers. They just don't, I mean, if you have 2,500 Twitter followers at any given time, like 70% or 80% of them are not even online when you tweet. And then, so you have your remaining, you know, 20% and, you know. What percentage uh, of those are actually real followers versus bots? And, yep, right. You heard the Newt Gingrich stuff. So yeah. Twitter's on the bottom. I'm not, I'm not slamming Twitter in any way. I mean, if you have a million followers, you still do have people listening. But compare, you know, if you say I have... 5,000 Twitter followers, 5,000 RSS subscribers, 5,000 podcast listeners, and 5,000 email, uh, email, what, signups, I guess. Um, yeah, em- yeah. You know, I would put email on top. Now, it also depends. If I haven't emailed those people in six months, then that's totally worthless and the podcast is best, right? Um, right. If you, but if you email them every two weeks and people are engaged and you can tell they're being opened, then you know, then it is actually worthwhile. So it, it does depend. And if, if you only put your podcast out every two months, then you're going to have the same thing. You, I mean, there is a relationship to be built there. But in my head, that's kind of the loose ranking I would give. Right. Now, the one thing I, I was thinking about in terms of the podcast is that you have much probably stronger engagement or stronger uh, relationship with your listeners because they, I don't know, they, I mean, they can hear you kind of as a person as opposed to just hear my ideas and X, Y, and Z. Um, but the thing is, is that a lot of times people are listening to the podcast. They're not sitting at their computer. It's not a link they can click on. Um, if you mention an article, you mention an idea, or mention a post, I mean, they may or may not even, they may have been interested when you talked about it, but by the time they actually sit down at a computer, it, 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 they have completely forgotten what you're even talking about, much less even have a link to it. And that's my always concern. I'm only concerned about, say, the quality of podcasts um, for I, I don't know. I, you'd say it's a conversion and say you have, let's say you have uh, uh, something you're, you're launching, let's say Audit Shark, right? Like what percentage of your listeners would actually follow up on, on Audit Shark because it's such a you know, specific that's a business there. Yeah, maybe not Audit Shark, well, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I'm just. I, I think the point you're trying to make, and, and while you and Rob were talking about it, I kind of thought about this, was, but. The fact is that engagement and willingness to do things are two different things. I mean, I, I agree for the most part with Rob's ranking, but I think that depending on what your goal is, you know, I might change my th- those rankings a little bit. So, for example, if you wanted to try and convince them to do something, um, I would definitely put email at the top of the list. Um, podcast, I might actually put below 
um, like a blog post and possibly below Twitter. Um, but in terms of engagement, I think that a podcast is definitely above either of them. Um, and, right. and the reason I would the reason I would put the the podcast below Twitter and below a blog post for trying to get them to do something is because they're already there. And if you're trying to get them to remember to do something and then, um, you know, and, and it will probably be after the podcast is over, which if you mention it at the beginning of the podcast or even near the end, you know, just as Justin said, or Jason said, they're not near a computer. Chances are really good. They're not near a computer and chances are they're really just not in a position to be able to take any sort of action that you wanted them to take. So I think that depending on what your goals are, they have different values. I, right. I've had a couple, we, yeah. we've had a few people uh, contact us over the last couple of years or a number of people who's, who've, uh, you know, expressed how they wanted to start their own podcast and that they wanted to do a startup and, 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 and almost like the, doing a, a podcast was a way to help build an audience or for their startup. And my suggestion was that, you know, that is very inefficient. I think we, if I had put the same amount of time uh, into, say, writing a, a blog and building up a popular blog versus the podcast, I think that would have been much more valuable. Um, but it just so happens that I enjoy doing the podcast and I don't enjoy writing. I find writing... Hold on, more- hold on. That would have been much more valuable. What do you mean by that? Well, yeah, I mean, if I mean, you know, if we have what? Like, I think uh, it, we may have approaching 1,500 listeners, you know, on a good good week. Um, so I think we're, we're just a little behind you guys, but in terms of that converting into some kind of, uh, tr- you know, significant traffic for, a, a, a you know, a startup that's even aimed at that group, it just, the conversion ratio is low. Like the number of our listeners who've signed up to say app ignites, uh, email list or, uh, any foos email list is, is remarkably low, you know, 50 or a hundred people were yeah, but probably closer to a hundred. Whereas, you know, when I wrote a couple posts that hit on front news, uh, front page of Hacker News, it was in the uh, you know in the, in the thousands, and that was just one post. And right. so if I had, again, if are, I had, you're yeah. comparing two but different things two, there, those, though. Yeah, yeah, you're comparing two different things. They're they're not the same thing. I mean, like, let's say you started a podcast, and it was for I don't let's let's say I decided decided to start a podcast about audit and compliance software. Chances are really good that the vast majority of my audience would not be people who. Are interested in other things. They're going to be there to hear about audit and compliance software, and it would be, um, you know, probably not a wise decision for me to stray from that particular topic, at least not for long right. periods of time. And those people would be, you know, the the, the audience would basically be self-selecting. And that's I, I think what you're 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 confusing those two different things because it, as you said that. You know, you, you were trying to, um, you know, get people to sign up for any foo from the texting podcast. Well, you know, the texting podcast is not about, you know, finding people who are experts to do stuff. It was, it was uh, after night rather than any foo. Sorry. It was the same with both. And, but I would think that they were close, more closely, they were fairly closely aligned. I mean, I think the majority of our listeners are technical they are coders not all of maybe 60 or 70 percent the others are more maybe startup uh business people but are they managers who have the authority to actually ask for funds like that and actually get them and chances are probably not no i so i i disagree with that i i think you do have a decent alignment in both with both of your markets i do think think you do have a decent alignment but i think think that the difference of what you talked about was you mentioned announcing on the podcast and getting 100 or 150 signups 
and writing a blog post that went to the front page of Hacker News and getting a thousand signups. Those are two different things because going to the front of Hacker News, you now have 10, 15, 20,000 visitors. That is, that is not the same as just announcing it on your podcast. Well, well, you yeah, just yeah. have you know, a thousand is, yep, people. If you had, exactly. If you had 1,500 RSS subscribers on your blog, you published a blog post and it never went anywhere. You know, it didn't go viral at all. It was just those 1,500 subscribers. And then you announce it on your podcast and have 1,500 subscribers. What, how many do you think you would get from, from those two? Yeah, that's, yeah. So that's, that's more the scenario. That's com- so yep. that's comparing apples to apples. That's, 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 yep. I think that's a very good point. I guess what, I'm, what I was getting at um, was the amount of effort it takes. Like how hard is it to, to spend some time, write a really good post on and, and have it hit the front page of Hacker News? I mean, maybe, maybe one out of every four if, or three or four posts if you're, if you're working hard. Uh, and you're a decent writer, can get to the front page, and, and maybe you spend an average of five hours per post, so 20 hours, and you get, so one, so you get like, if you hit the front page of Hacker News, you get 50,000 hits um, for 20 hours of work, let's say 20, 25 hours of work, versus, you know, for 20, 25 hours of work, I mean, how many podcasts, that's, you know, four or five podcasts. So I'm just thinking in terms of like, as the amount of effort put in to the amount of, of, return out in terms of say, if, if your goal is to build a startup, and this is my advice to people coming to us saying, Hey, I want to do a startup. And I'm like, listen, I mean, we're doing a, a podcast and like, listen, it is, takes a lot of work to build up a, a, a listenership is what I'm getting at. And, yeah. There's an interesting uh, podcast. It's not the best the, use of your time. Podcasts don't go viral. Like when was no. the last time you saw a podcast blow up and get a bunch of visitors? Like it just, uh, it just doesn't happen. How did uh, this week in tech end up with half a million listeners? Uh, Leo Laporte's well, network? Yeah, um, yeah, because Leo, Leo Laporte, he, first of all, had a big radio show in addition to Tech TV. And when he started it, he had that, he even talked about that on the show, how he was able to leverage all of those listeners so that when he launched the site, immediately out of the gate, he had, I don't know, 20,000 listeners or something like that, like day one. Um, and, and, of he course, he has, had divorce. Doesn't he have... A- doesn't he have like a million Twitter followers or 500,000 or something? Well, he, I mean, yeah, but he well, got them through, like they came long after he set up his it. whole podcasting and all that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, so the podcast started like what, like 2003 or four or something, you know, something like that. I mean, right at the, right after the end of uh, Tech tech TV or right when Tech TV was canceled. So, I mean, first of all, he, he obviously does a very professional show and he's uh, he's great at what he does, but he had a huge existing um, network of, of, uh, of listeners from both the radio and tech TV um, that he could, he could pull into it. And the also thing is that he's aimed at, at, at a wider audience than say uh, shows like ours are, which is, his is just general, you know, consumer tech. Well, I've heard that um, for example, the, the, Oh, which is the one? The .NET podcast has like a million listeners. Yeah, .NET Rocks has a million listeners, and that's much more tightly focused than what we do. No, I don't think that's true, actually. I I think the numbers were uh, lower than that. They they were aggregating their total downloads for all of their shows over a period of months, and it it was closer to like... Um, a quarter million if you aggregated all the downloads of all of their stuff for a period, for the month period, I think it was. Well, a quarter of a million so, is still a lot for a, a show that's just yeah. about .NET. Yeah, and, and that might not be, and I, that might not be right, but it's not, it's not anywhere nearly, near as big, I think, as This Week in Tech. I mean, you could maybe look at up numbers, prove me wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure it's smaller. But didn't they, is that show still on? I thought I heard that they were canceled. They canceled it or something. Do you know? I, hmm. I don't know. Anybody know? Anybody listen to it? No idea. What podcast do you guys listen to? Um, well, I listen to Texting, of course. 
uh, I listened to a few of, of the twit, the This Week in Text uh, shows like um, Tech News Today that's on every afternoon and uh, Windows Weekly and This Week in Google, which I find fascinating. I like Jeff Jarvis a lot. Um, and then I listen to This American Life, which is like the number one podcast on iTunes, has two million listeners. Very highly recommend it. Um, I listen to uh, a Smart Bear. Did you guys know Jason Cohen has a podcast? No. no yeah, yeah. He's been, he totally went under the radar. He never announced it. I was searching through um, iTunes and I found this and I'm like, oh, it must be someone else reading his blog, but it's him. And then he just did a Q&A show this week. So... Um, it's a good podcast. Oh, check right. It, it was like Ask a Smart Bear or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, yeah, like a Dr. Laura show for startups. <laughs> well, he probably didn't announce yeah. it because he, pro- he probably wanted to work out some of the kinks before he spent, got too big of an audience. You know, those first yeah. few shows are pretty rough usually. Yeah, I think he did. And what about you, uh, Mike? You, what, do you, what do you listen to? Um, so I'm way behind on my podcast listening, but um, the ones I have stacked up are... Um, I have the, the Stack Exchange podcast, um, mm-hmm. which I'm, I, I, I think I'm starting to kind of get away from that because they talk about the, uh, you know, they talk about their product all the time. And I, I think I was more a fan yeah. when they were talking about technology in general. And, yeah, it's um, gotten kind of boring. It's gotten, it's gotten kind of boring, I thought, because they, they start interviewing, you know, list, uh, like the people from the particular Stack Exchange topics, which is like, who cares, you know, about like home remodeling or something. Right. And, uh, it's not nearly as interesting it was when they were building uh, mm-hmm. they were building and arguing about Stack Overflow, which is about building a product and then of course building a product about technology. So I agree with you. It's kind of, it's hard to listen to now, I think. It's not bad, but it's not as good as it was. Yep. Uh, Hansel Minutes is another one that I listen to quite a lot. And then, mm-hmm. um, let's see here, .NET do you think Rocks. That's a little dry. Do you find that a little dry, though? Sometimes. Uh, I, I kind of pick and choose the episodes that I listen to. So depending on whether I think that the, the particular topic is applicable or not, um, you know, that's, I, I, I'll, sometimes I'll just look at the title and then decide whether or not to listen to it. There have been episodes where I've skipped. And I've done the same thing for .NET Rocks as well. Right. Um, that's and, interesting. So you base whether you listen to an episode based on the title. This is something I've, I've been saying to Jason. Topic, not the but, title, the topic. Um, yeah, the, t- the topic, not, I mean, cause the title is going to be Hansel minutes, but whatever the oh, topic okay. is. Um, so for example, one of the ones that I listened to specifically from the .NET rocks podcast was on machine learning and, uh, there were open source libraries that they talked about and code that was out on, um, uh, Microsoft CodePlex, I think it was. And it, it was just very fascinating how he was talking about how machines learn and because I did some artificial intelligence work in grad school, but um, I never really got too far into it because I only took the one class on it. But this guy, the guy that they were interviewing, was getting he either was getting or had a PhD in it. Yeah, so I actually was, listened to that same show a while back. <laughs> it's funny. Okay. That. Yeah, I yep. know which one you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I mean, those are the ones that I I kind of uh, listen to and just haven't really had a whole lot of time to get to them. I mean, I have other ones where I've been I have them on my list, but I haven't necessarily gotten you know, a good feel for whether or not I'll actually like them or not. So I'm kind of, I, I kind of try out new things here and there once I come across them. But I don't go you know, searching this, for podcasts quite often either. What do you listen to, Jason? Well, okay, I recommend a couple I think are my favorites. Like the the, the ones that you'll, uh, I mean, I've, I listen to Starbucks for the Rest of Us, of course. Uh, and I listen to um, This Week in Tech with, uh, you know, Leo Laporte. But I, that's kind of on and off. Actually, I only listen to it if uh, Dvorak's on there. 
I mean, he's not on there. It's it's too nicey nice. It's just no. There's no con- contention. It's just sort of. I, I don't know. It's just not. It's just not as entertaining. But uh, you know, one that I would highly recommend uh, is uh, this developer's life. They don't. They're not. They don't do them very often. It's like they're almost doing them like once every three or four weeks, maybe at most. But it's kind of like this American Life is where they got it from. But it, they interview three developers. It's real high production value. And and Scott Hanselman's one of the co-hosts. Yeah, it's great. Um, I've I heard the first couple episodes. It's really good. It's fantastic. I, I think the reason they don't do that often is it, it, is they put in such high production value. So they put so much into the production value. They they put layer in all this kind of good music, and they have you know the, the interview like three or four different people. You know, as whole separate stories. I mean, it's a big deal. But it's uh, to I think probably produce one of those. Another one which is really entertaining. But this is probably me because I think Dvorak's hilarious. Is X three? Have you guys heard of that one? No. Yeah, one topic, I, three pundits. <laughs> I used to listen to it. It was, it's good, definitely good. Yeah, if you like cranky gigs, it's like the new cranky gigs. They, they, they put it out. They think they record once a week, and then they, and they, and, and they'll do like six, se- you know, five or seven minute segments, and then they'll just uh, release one a day. So I'd highly recommend that one. But I'm trying to think, is there anything else that's really good? There's a lot of ones that are okay. You know, that that I, it depends if I'm the mood. I'll watch. I'll listen to this week in Google on occasion. I think it's okay. I'll listen to Founder Stories, TechCrunch, sometimes, but. They're not that entertaining, and and then Mixergy, of course, is interviews. But that really only depends if it's if it's a interview with somebody I wanna I'm interested in because a lot of them are like not very tech oriented, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't necessarily find those all that entertaining. Well, Mi- Mixergy is, I mean, it's a huge amount of content that, that gets put out. But I have to say, there's some real kind of golden episodes there if you if you go through it and find some of them. So I, it's sort of worth having a, a look into. Yeah, I think you keep an eye on it, right? It's like I, I'll keep an eye on it. and I'll listen to maybe one episode every week or two if it's if it's a if it's an interview with an interesting entrepreneur or, or an interesting topic. But I mean, you, it's almost you can't listen to you can't follow every episode. Otherwise, too much. Listen, yeah, too much. You listen hour and a half every day. You'd be listening to to it. So I don't yeah. know. Well, what yeah, do you guys? Part of why I'm so far behind on my podcast is just I've got other things going on, and I just I just can't keep up with them all. So that's why I've started picking and choosing, um, even on the individual episode level. Jason, do you, do you want to keep going on this subject, or do you want to? No, switch? I think we're. I think it's. I think it's good. Okay, so another another link that you sent through, um, and that you wanted Rob to talk about, was this um, stop AB testing and make out like a bandit. Yeah. No. Unfortunately, I sent these. I thought I had sent these links earlier, and uh, the email that contained these links, and I I'd realized right before the show that I hadn't. So I don't know, um, Rob, if you even had a chance to even glance at it. So you may not yeah. know. I think. I glanced at it. What, obviously, I see he's talking about the negatives of A-B testing, and that's all legitimate. You know, He says that A-B testing is suboptimal. It doesn't increase revenue as much as better methods. I'm not exactly sure what better methods he's talking about, but he says it's inflexible. It has a tedious workflow. I mean, to me, those are judgment calls, right? <laughs> it's like if you find a good right. tool, it's not actually that tedious or inflexible. But, but all that's fine. But he's, then he says, make out like a bandit. And what's the gist of that? Because it's like 10 paragraphs. Yeah, it's too complicated to explain. You know, it's, I mean, in a, in a podcast, I think, I think that's why he didn't go into it. Um, it's, it basically, it's, it's based on the multi-armed bandit. Uh, well, what, what did you want Rob, what did you want Rob to talk about? Well, about I it? mean, the, the issue, the reason that I think it's important is, and it's particularly in regards to, to uh, startups that don't have a lot of traffic. So for instance, like Plugio, you know, we keep talking about, you know, you running AB tests and you're, you're one, you know, uh, sort of complaint is like, well, I don't have enough traffic. I mean, I, you know, I only well, get like, you know, so many visitors a week. So what can I really learn? And I was wondering if something like a, um, using what he called the, like the bandit algorithm, um, might help solve that problem. You, you have fewer 
visitors, but you can get more information about about Rob's won you've won a b tests haven't you with low traffic sites and I think you were saying that the way you did it was you ran them for a few months yep I just run I mean you just have to run them longer it depends on how low you get if you have 10, 10 visitors a day don't a b test right just go go with your best judgment you use rules of thumb first and that gets you to kind of a uh, what is it like a, a local minima maybe a local minimum and then a b testing gets you to a local maximum right? It, it optimizes your, your current design. And then if you want to go to a different, a higher local minimum, then you try to do a whole new redesign and try to use different techniques and, and different rules of thumb or better ones. Um, so yeah, I, the bottom line is um, if you, I, I don't even know, I can't even throw out a number of, uh, I mean, if you had 50 uniques a day, I will throw out a number because I always do that. If you have 50 uniques a day, you can totally do A-B testing. I mean, that's 1500 a month. It may take you three to four weeks to run it, but you just need to run it, you know? I don't know if it's... Um, just sounds like watching paint dry. It sounds like the most well, you boring don't, thing. You just set a reminder for yourself. Check in three weeks, you know, and come back to it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, I totally but, do. Yeah, but I mean, you're trying to build a business. You've got to wait three weeks for something to happen. It's like, oh my God, I might as well shoot myself. Yeah, but a lot, I mean, a lot of companies are running A-B tests constantly, 24-7, like Google. You know, there's like thousands of A-B tests going on all the time. I mean, that's how you have to think about it. This is not some, it's a process. It's not a single step. It's not like you do this before you can do other things. I mean, you can set up an A-B test and just change the headline, boom, 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 see which one converts better. You're not going to know for three weeks, but hey, in three weeks, you're going to swap it out and then set up another one. You don't have to do any work during that time. You know what I'm saying? Any work on the, on the A-B testing part of it. You can still go on and build features. You can still go on and change marketing. I mean, it's really a parallel process, if that makes sense. With Plugio, I, I've kind of seen that I get this average daily sign-up of anywhere from half a user to two users per day over, the, over a month. And it makes an absolutely massive difference to me whether it's half a user a day or whether it's one and a half users a day. Sure. And so I'm actually scared to do any kind of A-B testing because it, if, it's, if it's sticking at that figure one and a half, then I'm like, okay, I don't want to change anything. Because screwing this out means I lose my $200 a month growth, and that's just too much to lose. But how do you know that you couldn't double it from one and a half to three? But it's just, that's like gambling. It's like, it's like going in, you know, how do you know when you put a dollar well, into a... You're gambling regardless. Bandit? You are gambling regardless, Justin. Whether you do it or not, you're making a choice, right? It's like, your, what's I say, like, your, your chips are either on red or black, regardless. The, the wheel is spinning. So you're just saying, well, I'm not going to make a decision. Well, you've made a decision. Right, right. right. I also think you need to focus. I mean, yeah, maybe don't make a, a, such a dramatic change. Changing a headline on your homepage is probably not going to send your business into a tailspin. But sending a, changing a headline on your homepage or changing um, a landing page pretty dramatically, uh, you'll know, I mean, especially if you're looking at signups or purchases is way too far down the funnel. That's too far down the line to measure. What you want to do is you want to say, what's the, the first thing I want them to do on this site? The first thing is typically not, oh, I want them to sign up. The first thing is I want them to click this link to learn more. Or I want them to give their email address right here to sign up for the, you know, the five-day course. Um, I think you have a five-day email course about Twitter. Or there's typically a really short-term goal that happens a lot more um, than an actual purchase. And you, you want to try to measure it against that when I say short-term goal, it's a quick goal that you're going to get 20 a day of, you know? Like how many email signups do you get a day? I see. You know what I'm saying? And so measure it against that. Try to change something that encourages more people to sign up. Now, the bottom line is 
A-B testing, like I know that your site converts pretty well. You may need, you may want to focus on other things right now than A-B testing. A-B testing is not always the answer to everything, right? It's really a, a, a tactic to uh, try to improve your conversion rates. But, you know, I mean, you have other things kind of going on right now. So well, it's, it was like in our, in our discussion, you, you said that probably a good thing for me to focus on was trying to, uh, now that I know what the, you know, the lifetime value of a customer is, a sort of mm-hmm. six months um, subscription is at, at the point of um, two weeks to try and upsell them to like a six month worth of, uh, you know, or, or maybe a year's worth of subscription, but for a price of uh, 10 months. Sure. That would be a better thing for me to focus on the Navy. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that, I think that would increase your bottom line a lot more than any, than trying to A-B test right now. One thing that uh, Justin and I talked a little bit in the uh, over the past couple of weeks was the fact that the Plugio traffic kind of stalled out there, and it seemed to coincide exactly when he sort of disengaged from it because he was doing so much consulting work. I mean, it's hard to prove it. It could have been, you know, it was the middle of the summer, Fourth of July. There was a couple of uh, technical problems, or an email wasn't being sent out. But uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, how much do? You, do you have you found a close relationship between how engaged you are with your products and how well they do? I mean, it's it seems to me that there's got to be something. I mean, it's hard to it's not something you can always quantify, but I don't know. When you well, check totally, out, does your product kind of check out? Your product's going to check out. Totally depends on the marketing approaches you're using. Let's say you have SEO in place and it's kind of driving traffic every month. You have some minimal maintenance over the long time, but the half life of that traffic is very long, right? Right. It, like once you're number one or in the top three in Google, maybe it's four to six months before if you did zero that that would, you know, if you did no work that that would start to drop. Um, whereas if you're more based on Twitter marketing or, uh, I don't know, cold calling or direct mail, you know, something that, that is more, even blogging, frankly, um, something that is more time intensive, as soon as you check out, then yeah, you're obviously your sales are going to, you know, kind of drop way off. Um, if you have advertising in place, like I know guys who, who run successful Facebook ad campaigns or AdWords ad campaigns, and those tend to have a pretty good half-life. If you, if you build a campaign that has a positive ROI, once you do that, you can run it for quite a while until either people get burned out on your ads or, um, you know, or or a competitor comes in and drives your prices up. Right. Right. The other thing you have to take into account is that there are certain times of the year that tend to be better for software sales than others. So certain products will do better at certain times of the year. So what, do you think that um, uh, June and July are low low times for something like Plugier? I would think so. Um, and the only, and I, I have zero data to back this up. My guess is probably yes. And the reason would be because, you know, summertime people are going to be taking vacations. They're going to be going to families. Um, you know, 4th of July weekend, tons of people are going to be gone and they may very well take an extended vacation about that time. Well, if that's the case, that blows, you know, a, a full quarter of your traffic out the window. Well, um, here, here's the question, uh, Justin. Did your traffic decrease during that month or did you get the same number of visitors and your conversions decreased? Because it's obviously two very different situations. Right, right. That's a good question. I, I, I'll, I guess I'd need to go into my analytics and have right. a look. Because I would agree with Mike. I would guess that June and July would tend to be not great months. Because, yeah, I've been on vacation on and off for two months, you know, traveling around and stuff. And I know a lot of other people have, too. So I think more businessy software um, and maybe even consumer software is going to have a tr- have trouble. But if, you have this, but if you haven't seen a downtick in your traffic and it was just conversions that went down then that's, an, that's a different issue. When do you find it that you're, you're paying too much attention to metrics? Like, 
it seems to me that like, if you're looking at your metrics on a day-by-day basis, sometimes it can be just distracting. It's like watching your stock price of a stock you own. It just, it's not being productive, but it's distracting you. Because I remember when we were at MicroConf and Justin had a couple of cancellations or he didn't get any signups for a day or two and he was getting depressed. <laughs> and it was like, I was like, Justin, quit looking at that. You're just making yourself upset because you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I mean, you know, but at the same time, you don't want to ignore your metrics. You need to have, you need to keep an eye on it. I mean, you know, how often, I mean, is it like once a week, once, once a, a month, week. you should be looking at, yeah, once a week yeah, is kind of a good I, rule of thumb. I would, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, I, I'd agree I mean, with that. Unless, unless you're actively you're, optimizing something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can think, I can, I can see it being kind of an obsession. You know, you can't stop looking at it, and then you know, it's like, what are you doing other than just making yourself depressed? And I tell you, it was, it was, it was funny, but I felt bad for him. But it was funny because Jesse'd be like, "Oh, another cancellation." Oh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> terrible. Yeah. I'm like, dude, you're bringing me down. <laughs> Quit looking at that. You know, I'm trying well, to listen to this uh, talk. <laughs> the problem is that it's human nature to be looking at those things because it it gives you some sort of a feedback loop. I mean, it's it's no different than. These people who can't put their cell phone down when they're out to dinner or doing, you know, or at the movies or playing with their kids. I mean, that's it, Mike. That's, it. that's Mike. <laughs> I, I'm actually getting away from that quite a bit. I mean, I've I've gotten a lot better about that because I'm more conscious about it now. Um, but it, it's something you have to you have to break that cycle. I mean, if you're constant, if you're checking your analytics every single day or every hour, I mean, those things are not going to change significantly over the course of a week such that you can't just ignore it and walk away. I mean, there's the, there's a psychological issue that it, it play there. And it, it happens to all kinds of people. I mean, it's just something you have to be aware of and deal with it as a problem and, you know, do your best to walk away from it. Well, the traffic seemed sort of less uh, for, for June and July, although not massively. I mean, it, you couldn't. I'm just looking at the Google chart, and it's not like it takes a dip or something, but it just seems cumulatively it's slightly less. So what is slightly? 10%? E- e- 20? 5, 5% less, 5%? Maybe? Okay. Yeah. That doesn't seem like it would <laughs> should have a major impact on conversions. I guess the only thing is, can you split out people who come to your site to log in versus people who are coming as um, more first yeah, I'm looking at new, new visitors. Visit? Okay, and, and basically, yeah, it it seems seems like a sort of five to ten percent dip for those months. Okay, but you had a fifty percent dip in signups or in revenue or yeah, new revenue. Much, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's to me, that's a conversion issue. I mean, we we talked a little bit about it. I think something in your funnel had broken during that time, um, yeah. either, and it, it could even be something as as stupid as like a page is suddenly loading slower because of something. I mean, I think that's what you said. Like, there was a job. Has that ever happened to you? Oh, absolutely. I had a, a funnel, kind of a long, extended funnel, and there was like a video that played in the middle of it that gave info about the product. And the video was hosted on YouTube. And one day, but like, revenue dropped, and I looked, and I couldn't figure out why that would happen. And I didn't follow the funnel all the way through. And so, like, a month later, like, revenue was just in the tank, can't figure out what's going on. And I finally stepped through the whole funnel myself and the stinking video was taken down by YouTube. And it said, it was like, this was taken down for copyright issues, but it was my, I created the video. <laughs> like, so I re-recorded the video and now I host, I make it a point that if I'm going to have marketing videos, I host them on my 
server, my local server, so that I don't have to keep checking back to see if they go. I will, I, you know, you can also put them on YouTube because there's good keyword stuff from there, right? Uh, YouTube's the second largest search engine. Um, so you want to do that as well, but I don't, you know, I don't then use that in my marketing funnel because I really want that to be stable. Interesting. So it sounds like it's almost worthwhile having some kind of automated testing thing going on for your funnel, you know, just to make sure it doesn't go down. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think if you have good metrics and you watch them once a week, you, you can tell that you need to, I mean, the first thing I do if I saw my metrics go down was go look at my traffic. And if your traffic's the same, I would go step through my entire funnel. Unless your funnel is so long that it's like painful to get through. Um, I don't know that you need to automate it, but then again, I'm, I don't know. It'd be up to you if you wanted to do it. I don't, I don't think I have any, I know I don't have any automated testing on any, any funnel that I have. What tools do you use for your uh, A-B testing? And in whatever, whatever you use for uh, analytics. I use, yeah, Google Website Optimizer is free A-B testing. But then um, actually Optimizely is quite good for, uh, for doing it. Optimizely costs money, but it's um, just much simpler to do. Now, Justin, is that the one you use or is it Visual Website Optimizer? Uh, I tried Visual Website Optimizer. I mean, I, to be honest, I haven't. You know, I've I've tried it, and then there wasn't really enough traffic, and I couldn't get uh, it to make enough difference that it seemed worthwhile to me. So I pretty much gave up on but it. But you liked that one the best. You thought it had the best UI, or the best features. The, yeah, the Visual Website Optimizer does well at the time. But remember, this was I guess six five months, months six, ago now. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was so going to say. It seems yeah. like they've all raised their prices. So now Optimizely is like seventy nine dollars a month, which is just a little. I mean, that's a little beyond my. Since there is a free version available that is fully, if you're a developer, you can use pretty easily. Um, that seems a little pricey. I think if you were more mm. of a, you know, non-techie, it, it definitely is worth it. But um, for that, and then, yeah, Google Analytics, I think probably all of us use that for just analytics because it's, it's a very good package for a free, for a free service. Well, I think, it's, I think it's been a great show. And I, I'd like to know, who do you think's going to be declared the winner between the tech thing and startups <laughs> for the rest of us? I think <laughs> they won this episode. They, won, they, won they the, definitely <laughs> provided more value than we did. Uh, yeah, they did. Uh, it was, yeah, it was they did. great being on here, guys. I appreciate you inviting us on. The question now is when do we have them on Startups for the Rest of Us and Girls oh, that's M right. about their products? That's right. We got to be the away, we'll be the away team that time. Okay. <laughs> that's gotta, right. Got to pick up a few points on the road. Um, right. Yeah, well, what we have to do is we have to fit. So ours obviously is just sort of random. We talk about a lot of topics. So if we come on your show, we're, we're going to have to fit into some sort of structure because you guys usually have like 10 ways to do X or three ways to be more you know productive or whatever. Yeah. So we're going to have to actually have something of uh, value to say. <laughs> yeah, what, what would you guys want to do? The two huh. of you. I don't know, Justin. You got any ideas? Um, not off the top of my head. I, I, I was thinking of some funny stuff, but I don't want to be insulting to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> anyone meaning Mike and I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, no. he's, to me. he's no problem being insulting to me. It's, <laughs> nice. That's fine. Yeah, well, I guess we'll just have to come up with something. You guys, maybe throw, throw, throw a few ideas at us that you guys want to do, and uh, we'll see if it's something that we can... Uh, talk about that would be that'd be gravity great that'd be a lot of fun cool. all right throw it throw it out there on twitter and ask people what they think we should talk about uh, yeah that's a good point. point not a bad idea what? Just, uh, justin mr what ten thousand twitter followers maybe he can 71 clout maybe he can get an answer <laughs> <laughs> Auto yeah. clout yeah <laughs> it's the, the, the justin bot yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I, I, you a, I have to ask you a question about that, Justin. How many of your links that you tweet do you actually read? Have you read? Oh, I, I read. I read a lot of them. The, I, I do read a lot of them. What I do is I wait for people to retweet them, and then I go, "Oh, if that's worth retweeting, <laughs> oh that's definitely God. worth <laughs> reading." Uh, 
That's oh. right. So you okay, okay, okay. So you I'm gonna you start tweet- retweeting yours just because. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I see you I see you tweeting some things. I'm like, Justin wouldn't read that. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with like something about Python or something. And I'm like, Justin doesn't know anything about Python. Why is he tweeting that? So I'm gonna get some serious um comments. I'm gonna get flamed, I think, for for, for this. Good. Good. My job is done here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap. We're out. Yeah, Mr. 71 Clout. Jesus Christ. I have like <laughs> naked clout. I'm a clout hole. <laughs> you are completely cloutless. I am a clout hole. If you come near me, <laughs> <laughs> you're a clout hole that's an awesome that's an awesome new term clout hole that is you uh, will lose clout if you come to them like a clout <laughs> hole you can see the event horizon come to uh, tier you, you sucked in your clout uh, is destroyed that's right <laughs> yeah uh, yes. well Jason Jason went away to go to the toilet okay. I think Good he dropped off for a different reason I'm just going to, I have to feed my cat because my cat's going crazy right now. So. It's fine. <laughs> just a sec, back in a sec. So while they're Did gone, you- should, should we record a secret episode of Startups for the, like an Easter egg episode? Of <laughs> <laughs> this is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 52, the lost 51. episode. 51.1, <laughs> the hidden episode. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah, I'm back. Bye. I was just going to say we should take over the podcast. We should. (laughs) I'm Justin, and this is Jason. (laughs) This week in UFOs. This week is texting for the rest of us. That's right, texting for the rest of us. Okay, back. So uh, I I, I guess you probably didn't hear my question, right, Rob? Sorry. Yeah, I didn't. I dropped off. Can you say it faster this time, Jason? I'll say faster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can talk fast. You want me to go fast? No, I mean in no, less when words. When you visited last weekend. <laughs>